Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. The recent earthquakes in Ecuador and in Japan remind us just how fragile life can be. The quakes also provide us an opportunity to show our generosity. Yet, despite our best of intentions, a lot of the items that we Americans donate for disaster relief are sometimes useless, as Scott Simon will report in our cover story. What do survivors of a tsunami need? Probably not these. But when disasters strike, well-meaning people send all sorts of things. Prom gowns and wigs and tiger costumes and pumpkins and frostbite cream to Rwanda. Just ahead this Sunday morning, while you may want to think twice before emptying your closet. Phil Knight is an athlete-turned-entrepreneur who's living proof that it pays to put your best foot forward. This morning, he'll be talking with our Lee Cowan. It is one of the most recognizable brands in the world. Chances are you're wearing something Nike right now. What do you think? When yeah. you look around and see your brand, your shoes, your apparel. It's pretty emotional. Obviously, it's gone way beyond whatever uh, we could have expected. Ahead on Sunday morning, the man behind the famous swoosh, Phil Knight, and what a waffle iron had to do with his success. Millions of us are looking forward to spending a day at the fair this coming summer. Bill Geist has already had a sneak preview. The 2016 carnival season is about to begin. New rides were test-ridden, and finishing touches made at the Carnival Trade Show in Gibsonton, Florida. Give it a whirl later on Sunday morning. Look who's talking with our Jim Axelrod this morning. It's talk show host Larry Wilmore, just six days from the biggest, toughest stand-up gig in Washington. Larry Wilmore has carved out a unique space for himself in late-night comedy. I mean, it's easy to say, black people, why aren't you acting like the dowager countess when a cop pulls you over? <laughs> oh, hello, officer. I'm so pleased. You... <laughs> and people always say, well, why you got to talk about race? Blah, blah, blah. Well, why not? What is the color of this ace? Black. Wrong. African-American. That's okay, Jim. Take your time. Ahead on no, Sunday morning, fault. Fault. Larry I'm Wilmore prepares now. to deal to his there most demanding audience yet. Yeah. Our Bill Flanagan offers an appreciation of the music of Prince. On this weekend, marking the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, Martha Teisner ponders a big what if. 
Maurice Dubois talks with two up-and-coming Broadway babies and more. Next, all for a good cause. And later, Prince and Appreciation. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Despite our best intentions, many of the articles that we donate in times of disaster turn out to be of no use to those in need. Sometimes they even get in the way. Our cover story is reported by Scott Simon of NPR. When nature grows savage and angry, Americans get generous and kind. That's admirable. It might also be a problem. Generally, after a disaster, people with loving intentions donate things that cannot be used in a disaster response and, in fact, may actually be harmful. And they have no idea that they're doing it. Juanita Rilling is director of the Center for International Disaster Information in Washington, D.C., She spent more than a decade trying to tell well-meaning people to think before they give. Hurricane Mitch, Honduras, 1998. More than 11,000 people died. More than a million and a half were left homeless. And Juanita Rilling got a wake-up call. Got a call from one of our logistics experts who said that a plane full of supplies could not land because there was clothing on the runway. It's in boxes and bales. It takes up yards of space. It can't be moved. Well, well, whose clothing is it? What is it? He said, well, I don't know whose it is, but there's a high-heeled shoe, just one, and a bale of winter coats. And I thought, winter coats? It's summer in Honduras. Humanitarian workers call the crush of useless, often incomprehensible contributions the second disaster. The Indian Ocean Tsunami, 2004, a beach in Indonesia piled with used clothing. There's no time for disaster workers to sort and clean old clothes, so the contributions just sit and rot. So this very quickly went toxic and had to be destroyed, and local officials poured gasoline on it and set it on fire, and then it was out to sea. So rather than clothing somebody, it went up in flames? Correct. The thinking is that these people have lost everything, so they must need everything. So people send everything. You know, any donation is crazy if it's not needed. People have donated prom gowns and wigs and tiger costumes and pumpkins and frostbite cream to Rwanda and used tea bags, because you can always get another cup of tea. You may not think that sending bottles of water to devastated people seems crazy, but Juanita Rilling points out... This water, it's about 100,000 liters, will provide drinking water for 40,000 people for one day 
um, this amount of water to send from the United States, say, to West Africa, and people did this, mm -hmm. costs about $300,000. But relief organizations with portable water purification units can produce the same amount, 100,000 liters of water, for about $300. And then there were warm-hearted American women who wanted to send breast milk to nursing mothers in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. It sounds wonderful, but in the midst of a crisis, it's actually one of the most challenging things. Rebecca Gustafson, a humanitarian aid expert, has worked on the ground after many disasters. Breast milk doesn't stay fresh for very long. And the challenge is, what happens if you do give it to an infant who then gets sick? 6-7, St. Hook School. Call is indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. December 2012, Newtown, Connecticut. A gunman killed 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School. When did stuff start arriving? Uh, almost instantaneously. Chris Kelsey worked for Newtown at the time. They had to get a warehouse to hold all the teddy bears. Was there a need for teddy bears? I think it was a nice gesture. There was a need to, to do something for the, the kids. There was a need to make people feel better. Uh, I think the, the wave of stuff we got was a little overwhelming. How many teddy bears? I think it was about 67,000. 67,000 teddy bears? 67,000 teddy bears. It wasn't limited to teddy bears. There was also thousands of boxes of school supplies yeah. and thousands of boxes of toys, bicycles, sleds, clothes. Newtown had been struck by mass murder, not a tsunami. I, I think a lot of the stuff that came into the warehouse was more for the people that sent it than it was for the people in Newtown. Uh, at least that's the way it felt at the end. Every child in Newtown got a few bears. The rest had to be sent away, along with the bikes and blankets. There are times when giving things works. As many as 50 million people along the East Coast are in the path of this hurricane. More than 650,000 homes were destroyed or damaged in Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Thousands of people lost everything. We were able to respond in a way that the big bureaucratic agencies can't. In fact, Tammy Shapiro is one of the organizers of Occupy Sandy, which grew out of the Occupy Wall Street movement. When the hurricane struck, they had a network of activists connected and waiting. Very quickly, we just stopped taking clothes. They created a relief supply registry by using a wedding registry. And we put the items that we needed donated on that registry. And then people who wanted to donate could buy the items that were needed. I mean, a lot of what we had on the wedding registry was diapers. They needed um, flashlights. How transportable is your experience mm -hmm. here uh, following Hurricane Sandy? For me, the network is key. Who has the knowledge? Where are spaces that um, goods can live if there's a disaster? Who's really well connected on their blocks? This was taken in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Juanita Rilling's album of disaster images shows shot after shot of good intentions just spoiling in warehouses or rotting on the landscape. This is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the donor. It's heartbreaking for the relief organizations. And it's heartbreaking for survivors. This is why cash donations are so much more effective. They buy exactly what people need when they need it. 
and Castro Nations enable relief organizations to purchase supplies locally, which ensures that they're fresh and familiar to survivors, purchased in just the right quantities, and delivered quickly. And those local purchases support the local merchants, which strengthens the local economy for the long run. Disaster response worker Rebecca Gustafson. Most people want to donate something that's theirs. And money sometimes doesn't feel personal enough for people. They don't feel like enough of their heart and soul is in that donation, that check that they would send. The reality is it's one of the most compassionate things that people can do. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, April 24th, 1990, 26 years ago today, the day the Hubble Space Telescope was lifted into orbit on board the Space Shuttle Discovery. Named for astronomer Edwin Hubble, the telescope was designed to peer deep into space, avoiding distortions the atmosphere imposes on Earthbound telescopes. But from the beginning, there was trouble. Hubble trouble, as the headlines put it. Flaws in the telescope's nearly eight-foot-wide mirror created distortions. NASA has been forced to admit the telescope is plagued with persistent fuzzy vision. Facing criticism, even ridicule, NASA scrambled to create corrective devices, glasses, as it were, for the telescope's mirror. Astronauts installed them during a mission in late 1993, a kind of orbital optometrist visit. Which one looks better? One or two? Hobbled no longer, the Hubble has been producing breathtaking images ever since, looking across both distance and time to show us the universe as it was billions of years ago. Not the time is standing still for NASA. It plans to launch a successor telescope in 2018. This one, named for former NASA Administrator James Webb. With a far larger mirror divided into hexagonal segments and positioned much further out into space, the James Webb Space Telescope promises our best view yet of the greatest show not on Earth. A tribute, next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As you know, Purple Rain was a huge hit for Prince. So big that to remember him, the New Yorker features Purple Rain on this week's cover. The questions remain about his death. There is no doubt that his was a life of gifted, extraordinary talent. We have an appreciation from Bill Flanagan. This has been a tough year for music legends, but the death of Prince this past week is especially painful because it was so unexpected. He appeared to be eternally young and vital. I never meant to call you anymore. I never meant to call you in pain. Don't lie. Where's your name in here? 
Prince made music at a pace and at a standard of excellence that very few artists have or could ever match. The first time I saw Prince perform was at a nightclub across from Fenway Park in Boston on St. Patrick's Day, 1981. I was a big fan of his album Dirty Mind, but nothing prepared me for how great he was live. This was at a time when racial tensions were high in Boston. But that night, in that bar, Irish guys from Southie and black kids from Roxbury and gays and straights and Latinos were all united in the Prince Army. His big radio breakthrough came a couple of years later with 1999 and Little Red Corvette. A year or so after that, Purple Rain made him a household name. Then The Deluge, great record after great record. Raspberry Beret. Kiss. He was so prolific that he gave away songs any other artist would have kept for himself. In the 50s and 60s, rock and roll meant the mixture of black and white music. By the time Prince came along, radio had resegregated the playlists. The new rule said that rock was white and black music was called R&B or funk or disco. Prince was a one-man rainbow coalition. He sang sweet soul ballads like Smokey Robinson. He laid down the funk like George Clinton. He rocked like the Rolling Stones. And he shredded on the guitar like Santana. Prince transcended radio's apartheid like a musical Mandela. I met him five or six times, but he was always pretty reserved. I never felt like I got to know him except through his music. His music was enough. The only limit I ever saw in Prince was that he was so talented, so shockingly self-contained, that he did not leave much space for the audience to affect his performance. He did not seem to need the crowd. A few years ago, that changed. The last three or four times I saw Prince in concert, he was playing off the fans, reacting to them, letting them into the music too. Baby, think nobody better. So you should have. You know I wrote this in, while I was looking in the mirror, right? There was a joy radiating from Prince in those performances that was new. The love he always expressed in his playing was no longer guarded. Prince, the performer, was doing what his songs had done all along. He was making room for everyone. Sometimes I read that life was And people always say, well, why you got to talk about race, blah, blah, blah. Well, why not? <laughs> Still to come, plain speaking. Yeah, 
with talk show host Larry Wilborn. Money changes everything, even itself. The Treasury Department this past week announced that Andrew Jackson's face on the front of the $20 bill will be replaced by that of escaped slave turned abolitionist, Harriet Tubman. It's a milepost. But over the years, not all of our currency has stayed current. Consider the cash no longer being printed, but good as gold, legal tender. The $500 bill. We're in the money. That's President William McKinley staring back at you. Grover Cleveland, he graces the $1,000 bill. James Madison is the answer to who's on the $5,000 bill. Does the name Salmon Chase ring a bell? He's on the $10,000 bill. Maybe it was because he was the sixth chief justice, or more likely, because he was secretary of the treasury under Abraham Lincoln. Last, but far from least, there is the $100,000 bill. Take a minute to dig one out of your purse or wallet. Recognize that face? President Woodrow Wilson. It's the largest note ever printed by the United States, but it was used solely by Federal Reserve banks. A pretty penny, to be sure. Make that 10 million of them. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Look who's talking about his upcoming performance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington next Saturday night. It's Larry Wilmore, a late-night TV comic with a very personal take on our times, as Jim Axelrod will now show us. What happened to you? When you were sworn in, you looked like the guy from the Old Spice commercials. Now you look like Louis Gossett Sr. Hosting the White House Correspondents' Dinner, is one of the highest profile, highest risk gigs in all of stand-up. It's kind of hard to be funny with the uh, President of the United States sitting right next to you, looking at you, and yet somehow, day in and day out, Joe Biden manages to do it. <laughs> the comedian-in-chief they'll be hailing this year, Larry Wilmore. That can be a scary night. Oh, it absolutely is a scary night. Not, ca not can't be, it definitely will be a scary night. Because no matter how you slice it, the President is sitting right next to you. It's been 15 months now since Wilmore premiered The Nightly Show on Comedy Central. Should one be on one's best behavior when the cop pulls one over? Ideally, yes. He's applied a unique topspin to cut through. I mean, it's easy to say, black people, why aren't you acting like the Dowager Countess when a cop pulls you over? Right? Oh, hello, officer. I'm so pleased you unexpectedly dropped in on me. Oh. It's crowded space, this late-night yeah. comedy thing. Mm -hmm. What's your part of the turf? Well, the thing that uh, we felt we had the permission to talk about more than anybody when we started was all the racial problems that were going on. Anyhow, we don't have a lot of time to waste, so here's your racist stuff for tonight. And last Saturday, a white cop in South Carolina killed a black man named Walter Scott. In fact, we joked when we first came on the air that, uh, all the good, bad racial stuff has already happened. There's nothing left to cover. It's like, oh, surprise, something happened. I'm talking, of course, about the Oscar nominations, or lack thereof. And people always say, well, why you gotta talk about race, and blah, blah, blah. Well, 
why not? <laughs> I mean, it is one of the biggest issues of our day and of our time. I'll stop talking about race when people stop being racist. It's certainly familiar turf for this 54-year-old native of Southern California. Hi, Mrs. Garrett girls. After breaking into TV in the 80s. I mean, you wouldn't do anything that could get you two to five, would you? <laughs> His behind-the-camera work as writer and co-creator of The Bernie Mac Show and the hit sitcom Blackish gave him wide berth to comment on race in America. Sometimes I feel like a bit of an oddity. And if you look to your left, you'll see the mythical and majestic black family out of their natural habitat and yet still thriving. Larry Wilmore! And in his work as senior black correspondent on The Daily Show and The Formula all came together. Before we get into deep on this, though, I need to be clear about something. I voted for Obama because he's black. <laughs> and people would always say, well, Larry, how do you think Obama's doing? Is he still black? Uh, yes, then he's doing okay. Do white people get that? I don't think so, because it's funny when people try to throw that back. Well, how dare you? I vote for people for their issues. Yeah, but you've been voting for a white man. <laughs> white man, <laughs> that's been the choice all the time, you know? Finally, when a brother comes in, I can't vote for the brother. <laughs> Look, he may not get anything done in the next two years, but at least he'll still be black. Wilmore lampoons what he sees as a not-so-hidden agenda of this year's election. So that means it's time to see what's happening with the unblackening. You do talk on your program, though, mm -hmm. the unblackening. Yes. Who's trying to de-negrofy the White House? The race to de-negrofy. Yes, I'm glad the you White said House. It. Yes. That's one of the more. That felt good, didn't it? Mm, it was intimidating. Admitted, it was kind of fun. A self-described blurred, his term for a black nerd, Wilmore grew up loving science fiction, and magic. I'd try to come maybe once a week when I'm in town. Which least, explains why whenever he's in Los Angeles, Wilmore so, tries to swing you know, by the Magic Castle, a somewhat eccentric hangout for magicians. You'll just see somebody, you know, just sitting here and then they'll just start doing something, just, you know, looking, you know, just start picking up cards. Oh, wait, there's another one there. And there's a, uh, oh, wait. Actually, as we found out, even when he's taking a break from his nightly job, Wilmore's mind never wanders too okay. far so you from yeah, the race card. What is the color of this ace? Black. Wrong. African-American. That's okay, Jim. Take your time. So, you know what? It's my fault. It's my fault. I should have warned you in the beginning that, you know, I should have cleared that up. Okay. All right. What is the suit of this ace? And keep in mind, I'm just a little sensitive right now, so I know. I'd be, that's a horrible joke. I apologize. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have you do that. Okay, so but race is just part of what captivates Larry Wilmore who's fascinated by the imbalances of power. I have this rule, it's called Top Dog, Underdog. Underdog gets to make fun of Top Dog, but Top Dog can't make fun of Underdog. But you know what you get, Top Dog? You get to be Top Dog, congratulations. <laughs> you know? And that dynamic happens not just in race, but in many different ways. It's like the, the male-female dynamic. But then Top Dog is always whining, how come I can't make fun of Underdog? Because you're Top Dog, so stop it. <laughs> When we sat in on an early morning writer's meeting, the top dog up for discussion was a rock star. I think Bono. comedy should be deployed. He had just shared with the Senate his unusual strategy for the war on terror. I'm, I'm suggesting that the Senate send in Amy Schumer and Chris Rock 
<laughs> he just throws the comedians yeah. into the terrorism. Go fight ISIS. To send up the idea, Wilmore's staff imagined the unique voice of comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert, where are you? I'm in war-torn Syria, Larry. That Ready night, it paid off. <laughs> when Bono issues a call to action, I answer. Okay. As he carves out his talk show identity, Wilmore is trying something a little different. Yet again, we have to talk about a mass shooting here in America. Winning praise from critics for not always chasing laughs. If there's a serious point to be made. I mean, I didn't get into comedy to talk about violent death all the time. Mr. Wilmore is less preoccupied with humor mm -hmm. than anyone else who has ever <laughs> occupied a mock news chair. Oh, my God. Large... Is that a way of saying Mr. Wilmore is not very funny? <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that's worked for me is having as much of a connection to the material as possible. And sometimes the material requires a more straightforward approach, and sometimes it requires a little more silliness, you know. <laughs> This coming Saturday, he won't have a choice. Washington's movers and shakers want to laugh. And from what we've seen, Larry Wilmore will certainly have something up his sleeve. The president means a lot to you on a personal level. Yes. So much that you're not going to zing? Oh, no, 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 no. That one has nothing to do with the other. <laughs> I'll make fun of my parents, and they mean a lot to me on a personal level. I've been making fun of them for years. Are you kidding me? So, Don't get close to me, Jim. The jokes will start flying. <laughs> It's a lot to process. Broadway <laughs> <laughs> bound. I'm just wild about Harry had its debut in the 1921 musical Shuffle Along. A new version of that groundbreaking show is about to open, complete with a chorus line of eager Broadway babies. Maurice Dubois has been following two of them. Curtis Holland does his food shopping cautiously. No, nothing on this aisle. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Healthy food, a healthy mind, and a healthy body are all requirements of his new job. Eight times a week, Curtis is leaping and tapping his heart out at the Music Box Theater in New York City. He says he was born to do this. When I was younger, I would just hop around my room, dancing in my underwear, and not knowing what it meant. It could be in his genes. The 22-year-old is from Miami, where his parents ran a dance studio. So this is destiny. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. All of that hopping around led to Curtis's appearance three years ago on the TV show, So You Think You Can Dance. For the past 10 months, much of Curtis's life has been spent in rehearsal halls off Times Square. It's a labor of love. I feel like I am in the dream. That makes me want to work harder and do what I have to do in order to get there. You might say Curtis has arrived. He's in his first Broadway show. Not a starring role, but plenty of singing and dancing. It's not just any show, it's Shuffle Along, the highly anticipated reimagining of one of the earliest hit musical comedies starring, written, and directed by African Americans back in 1921. 
This new version was created by top Broadway veterans, all Tony Award winners, director and writer George C. Wolfe, choreographer Savion Glover, and actors Audra McDonald, Billy Porter, and Brian Stokes Mitchell. I think Shuffle Along marks my 10th Broadway show, my 25th year on Broadway, and my 40th year as a card-carrying actor's equity member. Which is why both Curtis Holland and Carissa Royster, who's also making her Broadway debut this coming Thursday, can't quite believe they get to share the stage with Mitchell and the others. It's got to blow your minds. It's a lot to process. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I never imagined that I would be in this room with these people on, doing a Broadway show. It's been quite a journey. Born in San Antonio, Carissa began dancing at age three. Then she figure skated, and she just earned a degree in political science from New York University. It says here that you're looking to go to law school, Carissa. That has changed. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was an option for me. Before any of this happened, I was thinking about either going to law school or to get my PhD in history. She and Curtis earned roles in the musical, competing against more than 300 actors. And Carissa is our dance captain, by the way, and she has a very unusual talent. You, you must have like a near photographic memory for everything, right? <laughs> Yes, it's photographic, but I think it's a mixture of things. I, I know in school, like studying for exams, I would remember like how a professor wrote something on the board. Yeah, she remembers it. And then she remembers 20 different versions of it. <laughs> Which means that Savion Glover, probably the world's greatest tap dancer, counts on her to remember every dancer's steps, every dancer. To be at this level already, it doesn't get any better than Broadway for a Broadway talent. You know, if they're here at this age, that bodes well, I think, for, for your futures. In Los Angeles, people want to be a star. That's why you go to Los Angeles to be a star. You come to New York to be an artist. That's being on Broadway. Which brings us back to the supermarket, where every Sunday you do a week's worth of shopping. Broccoli, rice, chicken. Head back to your small shared apartment. This is the glamour. And spend the afternoon at the stove. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Cooking all your dinners for the next seven days. I have a very busy week, so Sundays are really the only days that I have to cook my food because when I come home from rehearsal, all I want to do is pass out. What's that like to live that reality every day? You wake up and you do it. You go home. If you want to, if you want to decompress and you want to cry a little bit, go ahead, do it. What about this brings you to tears? Realizing that I'm in it now. I can't remember how I got here. <laughs> I, I, I blinked and I was here. It's just really special because I remember wanting this. I remember wanting this. So look here. So look here. Even though they're wanting this, just a few feet away from greatness, Carissa Royster and Curtis Holland both know it may take years before they too see their names in lights. You are this close to the pinnacle of this thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're close. Yes, We're yet close. so far at the same so time. Far. Correct? Correct.
correct me if I'm wrong, but this is everything to you. It is. Because it's molding me into the person that I want to be. Not too fast. Come to the fair. Whee! With Bill Geist, next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A fun-filled day at the fair can only happen if the people who run the fair spend many a day in preparation, as Bill Geist shows us. Carnival season fast approaches. Hey, thanks for coming, you guys. God be with you. Keep up the good work. Better bless your generators. And Father John is out offering his blessings of the Father and of the Son up and down the Midway. Isn't this wonderful? This is my parish on wheels. I call myself the Carnival Priest. I'm going to bless your game here and bless the games and hope you have great business. Well, thank you. Bless all the rides going down. You bless the rides. Every single one. It's the annual preseason carnival trade show. Held in Gibsonton, Florida by the 4,500 member International Independent Showman's Association. <laughs> Not too fast. It's one carnival where if you like a ride, Whee! you can buy it. The Air Max is about three quarters of a million dollars. Although, at these prices, there aren't a lot of impulse purchases. This we're looking at $100,000. Whoa! It's one-stop shopping for carnival operators like Danny Brown from Arizona. We, uh, we own about 40 rides. Who's trying to keep up with customer demand. Oh, uh, they want more things. You know, they want to be scared to death. <laughs> so you scare people to death. Well, that's what they want, you know. <laughs> I'm scared. Carnival goers want scary rides and some pretty frightening carnival food, too. Lee Stevens is a carnival food vendor. We have a death by chocolate funnel cake. We came up with a, a chocolate batter. We developed a chocolate cream cheese icing with Hershey syrup. Custom food trailers are serious business. When you see an $8 sausage sandwich, it's because it's a $280,000, $300,000 food trailer. Games, of course, Come on, baby. are crucial to the carnival experience. Oh! This game that we're standing beside now is a, what we call our Whopper Water, and it, uh, the price on this is around $210,000. But we're coming out with new stuff all the time. Bob Casada, who owns Bob Space Racers, is a legend in the carnival game industry. And for one very good reason. You're credited with building the first whack-a-mole? Well, yeah, we did the first whack-a-mole. Are you proud of it? Yeah, very proud, very proud. Prizes have never been more important. We have to make people walk up to the game and want to play it. So they want color, they want size. This is a giant serpent thing, all new for 2016. What's this guy? This guy is, uh, we call him Turtle. That's T-U-R-D-L-E, turtle. What won't buyers find at the Carnival Trade Show? Sideshow acts, human oddities, bizarre animal stunts. 
Those have been relegated to the Kearney Museum across the street. Doc Rivera is curator. You paid your dime and want to see the three-legged man. Was he real? Maybe. Maybe he wasn't. But you had to pay your dime to go in and find out. Incidentally, he was real. That was Frank Lentini. Uh, he was a three-legged man, and he lived here in Gibsonton. In fact, Gibsonton was once the hometown of nearly every sideshow performer in the country, which made for one strange little town. In the 40s and 50s, uh, there were 138 human oddities in this town. And you had the tallest fire chief and the police. Eight foot four inch And the police tall, chief was? A midget. All relics are not in the museum. Hiya! Ward Hall, 85, is a renowned former sideshow impresario. He vividly recalls old Gibsonton. Right over here on Crystal Street was a guy who had 15 big bears. Did the neighbors object? No, because the neighbor was the guy who had two 24-foot python snakes. Ward traveled for decades with Ward's Wonders of the World. I had uh, Grady of the Frog Girl. Oh, my goodness. And Lobster Boy? Uh, no, the Lobster Boy never worked for me. We were friends. Um, but in general, there are no more freak shows. If I could find the freaks, I'd open a freak show tomorrow and make more money than ever. But there, where do you find the freaks? They're, they're not here anymore. Primary elections. I guess. <laughs> yeah. About all that remains of the old sideshow days is a small monument out on the highway and the Showman Cemetery, the final resting place of the human cannonball and lobster boy. The carnivals are still thriving, providing thrills to the bold and to the rather more chicken-hearted alike. Just ahead. There's something very zen about him, yeah. where people just slow down and relax. Taking it slow. Forget all those cliches about New Yorkers being in such a hurry. Steve Hartman has found one committed to taking it slow. <laughs> New Yorkers like to brag that they've seen it all. But in Central Park, there's one thing that still turns heads, makes cowards stop in their tracks while the brave inch closer. What is that? His name is Henry, and he's an African tortoise. There's something very zen about him, yeah. where people just slow down and relax. He belongs to Amanda Green. Amanda's had him a couple years now, but lately she's been feeling guilty that she can't bring him to the park as often as she would like. So I wanted to hire a walker, just like a person with a dog would hire a dog walker. A tortoise walker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She posted this ad on Craigslist. In search of a responsible animal lover, no tortoise experience necessary. The response? I have a love for animals, especially reptiles. I find anything that can't regulate its own body temperature endearing. Amanda says she was hoping maybe two or three people would apply. But instead, she got nearly 400 emails from as far away as Australia. And it's not a full-time job even. No, right? it's not. It's like six hours a week. And is that just one trip to the park and back? No, he strolls to the park in the stroller because otherwise it would wait, take wait, wait, a long time. Wait, wait, wait. a stroller? <laughs> I have a stroller for him okay. to get him to the park. Now that's an ugly baby. The whole thing creates such a spectacle. Amanda says often the hardest part of the job is controlling the paparazzi. But the applicants were not dissuaded. 
I'm currently taking care of an 11-year-old boy, so I know what it's like to try to keep track of something. I'd like to hang out with a tortoise. I want to be that man of Walk Henry. What's yeah. your favorite animal? Just last week. My favorite animal? Amanda um, narrowed it down to four. Red pandas. Make that three. Eventually settling on a part-time pet store worker named Amalia. She starts this week. Is it going to be hard that first time that you see him walk away ever so slowly? I'm not going to get a nanny cam, but... <laughs> if you do, can we do a follow-up? Yes. <laughs> Should be riveting. Still to come, Nike's Phil Knight. What was the name you wanted? No, Dimension Six. Dimension Six. <laughs> Why Dimension Six? Well, there was a fifth dimension, right? So we wanted to be an extra dimension. Doing it his way. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The name Phil Knight may not be exactly familiar to everybody, but the sporting goods brand that he created almost certainly is. Lee Cowan has our Sunday profile. Not far from Portland, Oregon, sprawling across some 350 manicured acres, you'll find this, a cathedral to sports and a castle, in a way, to capitalism. This is the home of the swoosh, the world headquarters of Nike. It's the largest athletic shoe and apparel company on the planet, with sales topping $30 billion last year alone. It took to the starting line over 50 years ago the brainchild of a young track athlete named Phil Buck Knight. He's now 78 and one of the richest men in the world. There are times when the sun goes down and I look out at the buildings and I get pretty choked up. An empire is sort of a funny word, but it kind of is. <laughs> well, uh, we, we don't use that word about ourselves, but it's gotten pretty big. He's a curious character, controversial, unpredictable, and fiercely competitive, possessing a just-do-it style of business that sometimes rubbed people the wrong way. It seems like you almost bristle at the suggestion that you're a businessman. No, not at all. I'm proud of that. We do business the way we do business. When he announced he was stepping down as Nike's chairman last year, Knight decided to reveal what he calls his crazy idea of a business plan in a memoir called Shoe Dog, published by Scribner, a division of CBS's Simon & Schuster. It was a crazy idea to the outside world, but it never really was to me that uh, it was always a big hope. That hope first flickered here at storied Hayward Field at the University of Oregon, where Knight was a mid-distance runner. Did you like the roar of the crowd? Very much. Yeah. I didn't get that many, but... Uh... <laughs> he wasn't the fastest, but he just might have been the smartest. I came here as a 17-year-old, just very uncertain of everything, and met Bill Bowerman, and I've often said, if there's no Bill Bowerman, there's no me. Bill Bowerman was Knight's coach. He was obsessed with tearing apart track shoes and reassembling them, creating sort of a Franken-shoe of his very own. What were they like? Well, they were just, the he, he would make them out of goatskin, and so they would just be, have almost no form in the upper, and then he'd get a spike plate taken off another shoe and then glue it on. They were pretty ugly, but they were light, and uh, I was one of his guinea pigs, and that, uh, you know, kind of planted a seed. That seed took root while getting his MBA at Stanford. Knight wrote a paper outlining a strategy of manufacturing running shoes in Japan where the labor was cheaper. Well, ever since I wrote it, it was sort of ticking away in there. It just kept kind of growing. After graduating, Knight put his paper into action, convincing a Japanese company to let him distribute their brand of running shoe 
called Tigers here in the U.S. He began selling them out of the trunk of his car. His initial investment, a thousand bucks that he split 50-50 with his new partner and former coach, Bill Bowerman. People say, oh, you hear what Knight's doing to the Stanford MBA? He's peddling Japanese track shoes. That's, that was a pretty big joke at the time. But I wanted it, so I said, I got to try it. I got to try it. By 1971, their little shoe company had sales of $1.3 million and a new innovation, thanks to Bowerman's unlikely experiment with his wife's waffle iron. He put urethane in there. He says, maybe that's the pattern. That's a different pattern that breaks up that should give you more traction and more cushioning. The result was the waffle trainer, a new kind of sole that Knight wanted to manufacture under his own brand. What was the name you wanted? No, Dimension 6. Dimension 6, which no one... <laughs> It'd be a hard time that. fitting on a heel tab, wouldn't it? <laughs> Why Dimension 6? Well, there was a fifth dimension, right? So we wanted to be an extra dimension. But no one bought that idea. Nobody liked it. <laughs> Mercifully, an employee proposed another name, Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. But Knight wasn't crazy about it, nor did he like the logo. The wing, as it was called then, a design he actually paid a college student just 35 bucks to draw was supposed to symbolize the sound of speed. But Knight thought it just looked like a big fat check mark. Nothing ever stands out and says, boy, that's it. There's not a eureka moment that, uh, for me that uh, in almost all these things. I just say, okay, that's the best we can do. Let's go. Marketing was never Knight's thing. In fact, he hated advertising. But he soon realized that well-known athletes wearing his shoes could speak and sell volumes. Romanian tennis pro Ily Nastasi was the first big name signed. John McEnroe would soon follow. And then came a 21-year-old basketball phenom from the University of North Carolina. Jordan, Michael Jordan. When you first signed Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. people thought you were nuts, right? Well, Fortune magazine ran a story about how Nike has lost its way by paying so much money for this basketball player. This you can buy. You cannot do this. Can, can, can. How much did you pay? The first year was like 250000 a year. And he hadn't played a single game in the NBA at that point? No, but he'd been player of the year in the, in the NCAA. The Air Jordan became so popular, people were willing to kill for them. And they did. In the early 90s, a string of shootings and stabbings over the shoes made headlines. That was just a shock. The reaction is, this is insane, and it's a shock. In terms of just the desirability, it had reached sort of this cultural, it was more than just a shoe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Nike rarely shied away from controversy. Sometimes, in fact, they courted it, signing athletes whose early promise was sometimes later tarnished. There are those who've been critical, for example, of Dennis Rodman and people whose reputation on the court is phenomenal off the court, is a little different. Do you ever worry about those sure. two sides? We like a little wackiness, just yeah. don't want too much. Athletes going rogue hasn't been his only trouble. His use of cheap overseas labor, while economical, proved disastrous in the field of public relations. In the 90s, Nike was accused of fostering sweatshop labor. Human rights organizations even called for boycotts of Nike products. While Knight resisted the charges the, at the first, he now insists conditions and wages have been improved. Initially, your reaction to it, you said, was making things worse. You were a little defensive about it. I was, it. yeah. We tried to find the best factories you could to work with. And, you know, good shoes come out of good factories. The fact that they could be better was what we should have concentrated on, what we ultimately did concentrate on. 
Boy, it's a beautiful campus, though, isn't it? It's very pretty. Knight has softened in his later years. Well, this part is all still the same. His personal fortune is now estimated to be around $25 billion. Money, he says, was never the reason he started selling shoes, but now that he has it, he intends to use it. By the time, you know, the lives of my my children and, uh, and their kids run out, I will have given most of it to uh, charity. Together with Penny, his wife of 48 years, They've already donated well over a billion dollars to various causes. They pledged 500 million for cancer research at the Oregon Health and Science University. At Stanford, where he drew up that blueprint for Nike, they've given more than a half a billion dollars and counting. I'm Phil Knight. I'm Matt Hidalgo. Uh, good to see you. But it's here, at the University of Oregon, where Knight's mark is most obvious. From the law school named after his father, to the gleaming new basketball arena, named after his son, Matthew, who died tragically in a diving accident. I can get pretty emotional about this place, too. I mean, after all, I was born here. The University of Oregon has given Nike something back, too. A high-profile platform to launch uniforms, helmets, and, of course, shoes. Phil Knight wanted to make history as an athlete himself. But instead, he ran a different race, one that has put that big, fat check mark on the face. Here comes Michael Jordan. Or at least the feet of athletics. Can you imagine yourself doing anything else? No, I'm blessed. I, uh, I couldn't imagine a better life. I just come out of hiding. Yavigan versus the Tooth Fairy. A rematch next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Fair warning now to any parent who has a child of tooth-losing age in the room. Our contributor Jim Gaffigan is back again to address a heated controversy of his own creation. Hi, I've just come out of hiding. Two weeks ago, I did a commentary about the Tooth Fairy. I know, an edgy, sensitive topic. Understandably, people were upset. We are talking about the Tooth Fairy, after all. <laughs> How dare I cast my dark cynicism on something as sacred and pivotal to the emotional development of all children as the Tooth Fairy? I have no excuse. Why would I go after the tooth fairy? Why would I unwittingly destroy a child's innocence? I guess I could say I was tired, but frankly, I'm always kind of tired. Sure, I could blame Obama. We all know he is responsible for most of the bad in the world. I realize that to some of you, my tooth fairy comments were equal to me burning the American flag or tearing up a headshot of the Pope. For that, I am deeply regretful. I mostly want to apologize to CBS Sunday Morning, my favorite show. To think that Fairygate has damaged the 38-year legacy of this show shames me to no end. I would resign if I were in any way employed by this show. I should have known a key CBS Sunday Morning demographic is baby teeth losing children around the age of five or six. I'm a complete ignoramus. I would also like to say I'm sorry to my close friend and fishing buddy, Chuck Osgood, who last week had to address viewers' concerns over my reckless commentary on the Tooth Fairy. Sorry, Chuck. Of course, Chuck gave me his all's good, Osgood thumbs up in Monday morning's meeting, but I know our relationship's been damaged, and I'm sad about it. 
I'd like to stress that I've learned from Ferrygate. I learned that thankfully in this age of ISIS and environmental uncertainty, that as a country we are focusing on important things, like the Tooth Fairy. Thank you, America. Ahead. Can I, am I allowed to talk Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Is it or isn't it? That is the question. On this 400th anniversary of William Shakespeare's death, his words live on. There's one line from Hamlet that could even be in the current news. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. So what if this man of wonderful words left behind a book of words? And what if two experts believe that they own that book? Questions for us to ponder now with Martha Teichner. We think we know William Shakespeare, but the truth is, he's really a mystery. There's evidence that a John Shakespeare lived here from around the middle of the 1550s. Paul Edmondson is head of research and knowledge at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-upon-Avon. This is a room in which we believe William Shakespeare was born in 1564. What little is known about Shakespeare the man comes from public records. For example, that his father, John Shakespeare, was a prosperous glove maker and wool dealer. He served on the town council. He became mayor of Stratford, or bailiff as it was called, in 1568. Yeah, this is it. This is hugely exciting. But it's in New York City, far from Shakespeare's hometown, that two rare booksellers, George Koppelman and Dan Wexler, think that they've lucked into one of the great what-if stories ever. Watch it do yours. Well, that wasn't so terrible. No, not that. So bad. That the contents of the case is a major Shakespeare discovery. Can I, am I allowed to touch oh, yes, it? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. yes Let, let's... What if the marked-up old book they bought on eBay for $4,300 in 2008, a kind of dictionary published in 1580 called Barrett's Alviary, actually belonged to William Shakespeare? It kind of doesn't matter where you open it, really. No. Because it, it, draw, it, it, it draws, draws you in. in. They brought their find to the Morgan Library in New York City in the summer of 2014 to show to Paul Edmondson. I'm trying to puzzle out the purpose of, of this right. page. The proof, Koppelman and Wexler believe, is in the handwritten scribblings in the margins and how they seem suspiciously similar to wordings in Shakespeare's writings. Shuffled together by ignorance. Now, of yes. course, shuffled is one of the most famous, yeah. you know, it's Hamlet, right? Right. Shuffled off this mortal coil. The title, Alviary, means beehive. Barrett was a Cambridge University professor who sent out his students, calling them his diligent bees, to collect words and their uses. Does this feel as if it might be Shakespeare? I wouldn't rule that possibility out. If these are the annotations of, of Shakespeare that are before us, then of course it's truly astonishing. But objectively, there's a lot of work to be done on this book. It was published when Shakespeare was 16, until around the age of 13, he attended King Edward VI Grammar School in Stratford. More than 400 years later, the school is still in use. He would have learned Latin and Greek, uh, a little bit of rhetoric. Bennett Carr is headmaster. All the ingredients of what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare Absolutely. came from, from this very room. 
in spite of all the images of Shakespeare around, especially in Stratford. What we think he looked like is largely based on this likeness in the first folio, the first compilation of Shakespeare's plays, published in 1623, seven years after his death. And it really is the truest portrait we know or that survives of him. Heather Wolfe is curator of manuscripts at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. When you talk about Dan and George's Barrett's, if it wasn't annotated by Shakespeare, who else would have done all those annotations? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are literally, literally thousands of candidates. Complicating our mystery is the fact that the only verified samples of Shakespeare's handwriting are signatures, which bear little resemblance to each other, let alone the jottings in the book. Does this look like this? The Folger Shakespeare Library is the largest collection of original documents connected to Shakespeare. Michael Whitmore, director of the Folger, says the job of scholars is to be dubious having an academic community go and look at this book as opposed to anybody else. You're looking for bad news. We've always said, bring, bring it on. Yeah. I've yet to read, and George has yet to read, an argument that takes our best examples seriously. Koppelman and Wexler, at their own expense, published a book detailing their evidence. They've digitized the alveare page by page and put it online so skeptics can study it. They can only trace its ownership back to the mid-1800s. There is no DNA, no CSI magic to prove or disprove their claim. Only databases that can tell whether these notes were commonplace phrases or unique to Shakespeare. Here, okay, so there it is. Wedlock. Wedlock. But there is this. You see, he's imitating this, this capital... W. And we see it elsewhere. We can see it with the S, with shuffled. We see it three times with the S and five I think five times with, times with the w. w and with no other letter. W and S because it was William Shakespeare's book or just coincidence? Maybe it is, but I feel like there's, there's just too much there. We are going down into the vault, um, which is where we keep all of our books and manuscripts. Soon, the alveary will come through this door. The Folger Shakespeare Library has agreed to accept it on loan. Here, scholars will be able to see it, touch it, and compare it to other books from the period. This is an extreme example of a dictionary that came out in 1572. It's got writing everywhere. As for Koppelman and Wexler, whoever heard of booksellers thrilled not to sell a book. If someone offered us a price, yeah. Uh, right now, and said, so you have to find a way to cancel your loan agreement with the Folger and I'll write you such and such a check. That would not work for us. Yeah, we're confident in the work we've done and we'd like to see it validated. Validation, at best, will be a kind of consensus because 400 years after his death, Shakespeare hasn't left us much. Except, of course, his words. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, ad-free on Amazon Music.
Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.